Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is Episode 71, the Weekly Word Podcast. It's here I try to dive deeper into many of the topics that athletes and new athletes and those just sort of dabbling on the sidelines of ultra-endurance might have. Topics and questions, nutrition and fueling, training and habits, and also importantly for this ultra-endurance world is how to balance it all, how to balance this lifestyle. Because as we know, it comes with a stigma of it being quite selfish, time-consuming, and it requires a sacrifice that many can't maintain over many years. And that's the bummer, right? Because here you are, you've built some great endurance and you have a huge foundation from maybe a year or two of um, participating or racing or competing or doing some of these ultra endurance adventures. And then life catches up to you. It just becomes too much um, to continue on with those hours or continue to deplete resources around you, resources being your own body, resources being your family, your career, and so forth. Um, But I believe there is a way to maintain it all and um, having a perspective and an outlook with regards to how we navigate through these hours and through this training and that there's times of bigger volume and where life frees up a little bit. And then there's other times where we need to pull back a little bit um, or a lot and focus on other things like family or career or community or busy with other things that are just deeply important to us. But part of that does not mean that we're always giving up or letting go or completely distancing ourselves from the ultra endurance lifestyle. And part of the things, part of the topics that I try to discuss on this podcast every week, besides the technical details of training and physiology and nutrition and fueling and mindset and so forth, is how we can continue to balance the ultra endurance lifestyle with um, the rest of our lives. Because I want you all as participants in this ultra endurance world to continue because I believe that the health benefits, the overall discipline and commitment that you're showing with regards to that health and fitness and that mindset is very valuable to you as a person for the rest of your life as well as the other aspects in your life. And The interesting thing about the ultra endurance world is that really it's a small category of people. Actually, it's a very small category of coaches. Um, I actually don't know of many coaches um, at all that focus primarily on ultra endurance. And I'm not just talking ultra running. I'm talking about ultra endurance. Um, I'd like to say that I'm a category of maybe one or two that actually do focus on the ultra endurance world. And that's not to blow smoke up my you know what, but that's more that I'm trying to crack into how we can all sustain it a little bit better. Me too. I mean, I'm part of this adventure, endeavor, this lifestyle, because um, working and a family, as well as taking part in a lot of these events, it's constantly understanding how I will navigate the weeks, the hours, the workload needed to do it successfully, which means with um, 
with joy and um, with results, not as much as it is um, podium or winning or things like that, but successfully meaning that I'm healthy, that I'm enjoying the training, the journey, the process, that um, I look forward to the next adventure. And so being in it with you and observations I make with coaching and the hundreds of logs I get every week, training logs of what others are observing, and all that is paints a very good picture, in my opinion, of what this lifestyle and what this world looks like. And don't get me wrong, you have all helped me become a better coach, not only because of this podcast of being able to communicate what I'm observing and what I mean and why, but also in teaching me with your training logs and your insights and how you're adapting to the workouts and what you're observing and how you're not adapting and how your immune system breaks down and how you might have shingles and how you might be sick and how you might have stress fractures or how you might be feeling amazing or how you might be responding really well to the zone two training and how your foundation might be getting bigger and bigger and that your diesel engine just keeps going and going and that the new normal of zone two is fast enough for you to achieve achieve goals that you never thought you could achieve. There's so much in the logs. And on a side note with that, sorry, I get worked up, is that those logs, some of you might think it's not really necessary or why am I filling these out, but they all, you're all data for me, not impersonal data, but data and insights and samples and information so that I can communicate better and more effectively and more knowledgeably of what the ultra endurance lifestyle and training and mindset really is. I have daily data from many, many, many athletes doing all kinds of different events that continue to validate or create new theories and approaches on training and nutrition and fueling and mindset and psychology and balance and lifestyle and recovery and sleep and you know all those things daily i'm getting that from all of you and that's why the logs are also so important to me not just for you for your training logs so that you know and can look back and observe and someday also look back and look at the amazing things you trained and achieved and how alive you felt and the heart rates you held and the wattages you pushed and the paces you swam and the vertical you gained and the mountains you climbed and the locations you trained at and the amazing weekends you had with all this it's a two-way street I also have the privilege of sitting there and looking into all these different sample sizes, test subjects in all of you, my athletes, over what is now 20 years of coaching endurance and then more into the ultra endurance space of validating what is truly going on, what it is like to live the ultra endurance lifestyle. And so I guess part of that right now is thank you. Thank you for continuing to provide that insight and what you're learning and what you're observing and what your insecurities are and what you want to know more about and how you need help and how I can contribute to that. That's amazing. And again, this week I got some great emails from some of you thanking me with regards to races that you did and your perspective and your health and your injuries and your recoveries and how the podcast has been helping. And all I am trying to do with this podcast 
is help as many of you enjoy this lifestyle, this adventure of ultra endurance like I do. It is so beautiful out there. It is so immersive out there. It is so fun along the journey of the training and the fitness and being connected and observing and feeling healthy and fit and the ability to take on any challenge and feeling strong and confident and joyful with everything because you are living healthy, you're living to your potential, you're living a balanced life. And I speak of that to whether it's to my guys in the military and some of the special forces guys, understanding the privilege and the beauty that of what it is they have. And this isn't a question of being grateful. This is a question I just had the other day, a conversation with one of my guys stationed far away, I should say. Um, and we were talking on Skype about how his ability to go out for a mountain run at altitude and take in the local culture um, and observe and be part of his environment and surroundings and those villages and what he's observing on these long hikes and runs and um, his detail and what he's writing down in his log and his diary, that's amazing. How many other in his unit, in his at his um, at his forward base are able to take in what he's taking in because he has the ability to run 50, 60 miles just on a whim. It teaches him and it gives him a perspective and an insight and connectivity to the locals that most don't have. And he isn't a soldier when he's doing that. He's a human being when he's doing that. And of course, I'm leaving out the details here with regards to he has to be very careful, of course, and there's other things going on here while he's doing this and so forth. But again, it's the ability that his lungs and his mind and his body and his legs and his joints and his frame allows him to do this. And it took us a while to build it up like this, about 18 months, 24 months. But like I said, he could just go run 50 miles in anywhere in location, and he's at altitude, no less, and you know, still perform his duties and still do what he has to do. I think those things are amazing. That's ultra endurance. Ultra endurance to me, in many respects, people have asked me this before, what is ultra endurance to you? To me, it is your ability to take on these adventures, do these adventures, and I think I talked about it last week in the podcast or two weeks ago, to take on these amazing feats, adventures. I mean, John F. Kennedy's 50-mile challenge used to be a challenge. Now people are doing it on a weekend, on a training run, on a whim, it used to be the ultimate two-day challenge that John F. Kennedy, when he put the 50-mile challenge forth, if you want to look it up, that's where it comes from. And now we're doing it. We're just doing it as part of practice. We're playing in a bigger arena. 
And to me, ultra endurance is your ability to do that, to play in that arena, and then come back to still your normal life, not be shelled on the couch all afternoon and ruined and not be a participant in your family or at your work or and so forth in the community to coach your little league baseball team, to, to be busy at the church after, in the afternoon, um, building houses with Habitat for Humanity. I mean, this is all my athletes. This is all what you guys are doing. That's the crazy thing. You guys are all doing this in the morning or in the afternoon or whatever on one day. And the next day, you're building homes for Habitat for Humanity. How wonderful is that? Some of you, I just learned, are flying F-15s and protecting our country and our values and who we are as a nation. And while we all might have opinions about all of this, the fact is that person is still out there training, doing their thing, connecting with themselves and their insides and their mind, insides being their, their, their body and how it's a wonderful, amazing tool and organism. And then the next day they're back up there in the sky, doing their job, flying their missions, teaching others, instructing, and so forth. I mean, that's just amazing to me. And that's what ultra endurance truly is. Your ability to withstand that type of training, those type of events, enjoy that type of journey, fit it all in, go off and do those events, those adventures. And some of us take them more seriously than others. Of course, I totally get that. Some of us are racing. Some of us are looking to be the best on the top of the world. Others of us are trying to be the first ever to do something. I have a gentleman, like I was mentioning a few weeks ago, he's going to try to ride his bike the length of Great Britain. And of course, sure, does that sound super crazy to some of us? No. But you know what? To him, his first ultra endurance journey, his first nine days of back to back to back to back to back to back 100 plus mile rides over any terrain and any weather as we know in Great Britain and the things in the uh, he's going to experience and the the valleys he's going to have to work through and the peaks of emotion he's going to feel that's ultra endurance that's connecting with your best version of yourself and that's going to bleed into the rest of his days and life and many, many more adventures. And that is so amazing. That health and that new potential. He just rode a thousand miles in nine days. Do you think he's just going to stop from there? You don't think he's going to walk away going, oh, well, first, the first few days he's going to be shelled. But afterwards, like that was exhilarating. I've never felt so alive, never so connected, never so in tune with my body. All I did all day for nine days is wake up, ride my bike all day, listening to my body, tuning out the world, taking in this beautiful country, this beautiful environment, this beautiful nature, the rain, the sun, all of it. It's part of it. It's what we're meant to be as human beings. We're supposed to be outside absorbing it, living it, breathing it, and being an organism and alive within it. It's beautiful. 
It's beautiful. And as you can hear how I'm talking, I get very passionate about this because to me, that is what ultra endurance also is. You go farther and farther into nature, but you also go farther and farther into yourself. And the more you unpack and the more you're familiar with yourself, the better you can be, a better version of yourself you can be um, physically, but also spiritually. Knowing yourself, having gone that deep, when we're all training for our ultra endurance, we're spending time with ourselves. Just think of how many people don't spend hours with themselves, by themselves, out in nature. Creativity, feeling alive, reflecting, that all happens while we're out there. And yes, you might be listening to podcasts, but I know for a fact that many of you also turn it off every now and then and just run in the woods. Just hike up those mountains. Just ride along those roads and appreciate the beauty and the villages and the surroundings around you. Just swim. Just swimming, whether it's in lakes or oceans or even in the pool and just that rhythm of breathing and the water rushing by your body, a lot happens there. A lot happens there. Us as human beings immersed in water has an amazing effect on our body from the heart to the capillaries to our mind. Being in water, you guys all know when we come out, we always feel alive. A shower feels alive, let alone being immersed in a body of water. So there you have it. My usual long intro, but again, that is why we have this podcast. We, because all of you contribute to it, like I was describing, all of you with your training logs and your input and your emails and your insights and your questions and your curiosity, you contribute to it, and I love that. And I'm, I feel honored and privileged to have this forum and this discussion with you. And I hope you see that I try to include you as much as I can in this. Because again, you are the fabric that makes this podcast so that I can talk about it. Not just about me and my experiences. That would be quite boring. We would not be 71 episodes into me, my training, or what I do. Because <laughs> talk about ego then. <laughs> so anyway, enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being patient with me as I sort of go off on my deeper thoughts here. Story time with Chris and enjoy this week's podcast. And again, always, always feel free to send me questions or thoughts or input or things you'd like me to talk about, whether it's my training, whether it's what I'm reading, whether what I'm observing, whether what some of my athletes are doing, just across the board. I'm here to help support all of you in your ultra endurance adventures. Remember, on the far end of what you believe is your potential and creating a new potential outside of that because you've reached that far end of what you believed you could do and systematically helping you achieve that goal, that potential in a healthy and sustainable manner. Sustainable, that being that balance. Healthy, being injury-free and happy and joyful doing it, the journey. So enjoy. I just received some great rapid fire questions. Um, it's a new client of mine and 
What's interesting about getting questions from new clients is that um, it reminds me and helps me pull the lens back a little bit and explain why we do what we do or why I apply certain concepts early on in my coaching as I build the athlete, rebuild the athlete, or at sometimes starting from scratch. First question, what is catch-up freestyle? Catch-up freestyle is one of the most critical drills in swimming that we have. I know, I know, I owe you all a swim-focused podcast. It's not easy to do without having somebody to videotape me and spending an afternoon at the pool deck so that in show notes and follow-ups, I can give you all the details that I talk about and describe in the podcast. But anyway, I digress. Catch-up freestyle allows for better timing, better distance per stroke, better feel for the water, and a more powerful stroke in freestyle. Just think of it this way. Oftentimes when we cycle, what were those... um, uh, those cranks called that were loose and therefore required you to pedal in the just the right spot for maximum power transfer. That's simply what catch-up freestyle is. Because you're catching up your one hand to the other hand at the front of your extended freestyle stroke and staying there for a moment, the important thing is to stay there for a moment in that Superman position, in that hand at 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock, up front, relaxed with a little bit of kick going, and then beginning a whole new stroke with one arm that then comes back to the starting point before the other arm begins again. Now, the better, uh, not begins again, uh, begins, does its pull, and then you repeat the next side and the next side and the next side until you're at the other end. Now, it teaches us length. It teaches us to focus on just one arm pulling through. It teaches us front quadrant swimming, and it lines us up on the water um, in a good starting position, Superman, um, with every stroke. And it just shows you that with the proper entry, the proper reach, and the proper pull through, how far you can go with one freestyle stroke. Oftentimes, when many, many, many triathletes, non-swimmers, swim freestyle, their one arm is basically under them or behind them while the other arm is starting the pull, which means you'll have a dead spot in your freestyle stroke and your body will fall. It will sink in the water before your other arm actually gets the catch phase of your freestyle going in order to bring you back up. It creates an incredible delay in your freestyle. It slows you down a lot because at some point, think of it this way, at some point, your one arm is pulling through, let's say, below you or next to you by the hip, and the other arm is in the air, still coming forward, right? Because we're short of um, windmilling it a little bit. The one arm is in the air while the other one's still in the catch phase. Now, what is happening there? The widest part of our body, shoulders with head, is barging through the water with nothing in front of it, just heading on a deep dive since there's no leverage up front. Despite the pull through pushing your body forward, but the arm, the other arm is in the air. So now you have both shoulders sort of just driving with your head through the water without anything up front to keep it up high. And we want to keep that arm out front 
almost until the other arm reaches it in order to stay on top of the water, to stay with a good vessel length. That means as our arm is about to come forward and enter into the water, that other arm just is starting its pull. And um, I would love to give you all some good video footage of this, and it will come, I promise. It will be a summer, um, which is here, um, good weather, proper pool, proper videotaping um, for you so that you can all see it. But feel free to look it up on YouTube or Google, catch up freestyle. The best catch-up freestylers in the world are often the best freestylers in the world. The Michael Phelpses of the world, those swimming the 200 freestyle at the highest level, whether world championships, Pan Pacific Games, Pan Am Games, whatever, Olympics, so forth, they are looking like they are almost swimming catch-up freestyle with a strong kick as they're zooming down that 50-meter pool. So catch-up freestyle is an incredibly powerful and important drill. It basically ties in all the drills, many of the drills that we already do with regards to single arm, with regards to gliding, with regards to Superman drill, with regards to sculling, with regards to three-second glide, with regards to so many drills that are currently out there. And so you definitely want to apply a couple hundred yards. I still do this every single workout. I'm coached at a master's workout, but I spend time every warm-up and in some drill sets doing catch-up freestyle every single swim practice. I would say it adds up to about three, 400 yards every single time, and it just sets up the front end of my stroke. All right, next question. Snorkel or no snorkel for kicking? Now, the challenge for kicking is that Yes, with a snorkel, it's nice because you bring your body position into neutral. But when you're kicking with a kickboard, I like your body and your arms to be up on that board, gripping or um, rolled over the front of the kickboard, and your upper body sort of higher than your lower body, than your legs. Because I want a good flutter. I want a good deep flutter kick. I want a good ankle flexion and kick going while we're kicking. Now, of course, we can create a better position by putting the snorkel on and getting our head lower in the water, keeping our shoulders pretty level, and therefore bringing our hips up and our legs up. But what often happens for non-swimmers then is that they're kicking a lot of bubbles in air because their feet are higher on the water and therefore not getting the full resistance and flutter of a good, strong, powerful kick. I have a lot of my athletes <clears throat> do the vertical kicking motion. And again, you can find some really good uh, visual aids of this in on YouTube and just look up vertical swim kicking, vertical freestyle flutter kick, vertical kick. And what it does, it just shows you how much propulsion and how much water you're actually displacing when you are effectively kicking. Now, of course, you will start with your arms in the water, but you will get to a point and you can get to a point and it's a very good drill in general for runners as well to loosen up those ankles and create a variety of flutter power, calf power, ankle power, planter, Achilles, all that is in play when you're doing vertical flutter kick. 
And so similarly there, you're not displacing a lot of air and bubbles when you're doing vertical kick. It's all just pure resistance of deeper water because you're vertical. And so similarly, I like my athletes to use a kickboard to kick because it automatically brings the front end of their body a little bit higher. And when you bring the front end of your body a little bit higher, the body works like a seesaw in the pool. So that means the back end will go lower and you will have more resistance to kick. Next question. Uh, what is bike? Uh, what is goal bike cadence um, for easy and aerobic bike efforts? It's all the same. It's all the same. It's always in the upper 80s for me. And unless, <clears throat> excuse me, unless you're extremely powerful and have a good reason for your leverage and your bike strength to bring you into the low 80s, upper 70s, in the rarest cases, do I think that's accurate? And in the rarest cases, do I think higher than 80s um, into the low 90s is appropriate? Oftentimes, you're overspinning your gears and not allowing for the full power transfer of your muscles and your legs and connecting with the pedal circle to happen when your cadence is too high. <clears throat> we all got pulled away from the ideal cadences and good um power throughout the circle in the years of Lance where he had such an amazing ability to cycle at a high cadence while still having an amazing power transfer. And he is definitely outside the bell curve. He was um, very, very skilled with that high cadence and he perfected it because he was a swimmer at a young age and he created a huge lung capacity and had a huge VO2 max, which is all legendary. And with that, he realized that at a higher cadence, therefore higher heart rate, higher oxygen con consumption, higher need um, for breathing because the heart rate is higher because of higher um, turnover cadence um, work, more cardio, he was able to sustain power better than if he slows down the cadence too much and goes more to a muscular power. He knew he wasn't going to outmuscle a lot of riders when he came back from cancer. Um, instead, he focused on a better engine, right? And you can see that in his early world championships when he was cycling, you could see him muscle just muscle his way through some of the classics and some of the, the harder rides that he did with regards to on the pro circuit and, and the, visual, uh, the video imaging that we have of that. And then he switched it over in his years while he was on a trainer and rebuilding his body um, to get ready for cycling. But we got all pulled away from that because of his unique ability to do that. Now, get the cadence too high you're slipping on the gears, slipping on the power, your, your wattage is going to drop off. Now, of course, we'd love to spin the big gears, but that takes also a lot of work and time to bring that power up. So, and prepping for a running event post a cycling event, we don't want to go too muscular, too low on cadence, and too high, too cardio um, on cadence, because Either way, that will fatigue us for what is often a very big running segment leg needed for a quality performance in triathlon. So I recommend 84 to 90 cadence most of the time and then adjusting your effort, adjusting your easy, moderate, hard based off of gearing that you choose. Um, 
And in general, you guys have all heard from me, I recommend highly that on indoor bike rides, we ride about five to seven uh, cadence numbers higher because it's a great drill and great time to focus on higher cadences because we don't have to sh shift so much and we can predict the terrain and maintain a better cadence and it's a good time to practice that. But outside, the, the cadence seems to come down a little bit, always due to changes in undulation in the road and not being in the right gear all the time uh, versus constantly shifting. So, but yeah, um, at the end of a race, seeing a, a low 80s number for cadence is really a good sign because oftentimes coasting and so forth means that that average cadence comes down. But if you're in the mid 80s, you're doing a great job. Great job with regards to cadence, again, in my opinion. Next question. Does pull imply paddles and pull buoy? Great question as well. I always want to at least pull uh, the buoy when we're pulling. Why? Because I want you to want us to get a little bit higher. Uh, sorry, that was a phone call coming in. Um, a little bit higher of a um, position in the water because the pull buoy between your legs will bring up your torso a little bit and make it a little bit easier to swim in the water, as well as um, give your arms a little bit of a break because you'll be higher on the water and a little bit less resistance and easier to pull through. Now, I definitely prefer a lot of um, paddles when we're pulling. Why? Because this is a strength exercise. Because the paddles create a bigger um, area of which you're pulling your hands and therefore displacing water through the stroke, um, you go more muscular. You need more power to do that. A, it requires more oxygen, right? Because you're using more muscular power. More muscular power means the, the bigger muscles are at play and therefore big muscles require a little bit more oxygen. Um, also, uh, you want to keep in mind that it's like big gear work on the bike. Slowing down your stroke and using more uh, muscular power helps us strengthen, but also helps you feel the water differently. If you are slipping in your freestyle stroke at, in the power transfer part of your freestyle, the, because the paddles are going sideways, um, you'll quickly notice that. You'll quickly lose the grip on the water with paddles. Um, because it's such a bigger displacement area, it becomes a lot more um, noticeable. And so paddles are a very, very good tool for all those reasons. And I always prefer us to use paddles. I always want you to get a better distance per stroke, get reach out there further and pull longer through your stroke to create better power transfer. And it does feel a little weird when you go back to regular freestyle after wearing some paddles. That's totally true. But after a couple of strokes or a couple of lengths, you quickly feel the difference of having A, used a lot more muscular power and you're more fatigued, but B, you also feel how you're grabbing more water and have a better transfer of that power of your stroke pulling through the water. And then finally, um, head up drill. Head up drill is one of my favorite drills because it focuses us on front quadrant swimming. And front quadrant swimming is a buzzword that was used um, probably about 10 years ago a lot. And while I'm not necessarily all about front quadrant swimming, um, I, I'm a big believer in hip-driven freestyle as well. And, you know, a variety of other aspects with regards to distance per stroke and a strong kick. 
What I like about head up drill is because our eyes and our mouth and our face is fixated out of the water at a point on the other side of the pool and we're not swaying our body, we're not moving our head from side to side, we're not breathing from side to side, we're breathing forward, we try to keep the head as still as possible while we're swimming freestyle. So head out of the water, chin practically out of the water. I would like to be it to be out of the water, but that's not that easy. But if your chin is in the water too far, you're gonna be swallowing water breathing forward because there's gonna be some wave action and splash back into your mouth. So you wanna get higher. And because you have to do that, you have to reach out and push down with your freestyle stroke before you bend your wrist and begin the curl of your arm to develop the pull back in power, to pull through the water. Remember, through the water, you're not pulling back, sorry. So out, down, through the water on your pull. And head up drill freestyle um, helps highlight this front um, third of your stroke, front quarter of your stroke of reach and down first before you start pulling for back and through your freestyle stroke. The other thing is, as you get better at it, you can slow down at it and you don't need to kick as much and you don't need to do it as hard. You notice that by going really slow, you still are able to keep your head up and perfectly smooth and swimming quite well through that head up drill freestyle. And again, this is another thing that I really like to um, get on video because uh, these are great drills for everybody to apply, swimmers and non-swimmers, strong swimmers in the triathlon, strong open water swimmers or not. Um, it's just fun to mix it up and do different things. Same as for me, after all my years of swimming, I mean, basically 45 years of swimming now, 46 years of swimming, um, I just started using the the skull action and the sculling that a lot of American and US swimmers have been doing for many years. Um, I just started that like two, three years ago with the coaches that I work with and I love it. It's a great drill and a lot of great new drills and water feel and um, hand and um, um, wrist strength and, and leverage that comes with it. But man, I, I lived without sculling and swimming at the highest level for pfft, 30 years, <laughs> never did that. And so still learning, still applying, still um, working out kinks and tweaks and awarenesses in my stroke. And I think that's helpful for all of you too. So those are some of the quick questions that I would get from a new athlete just as they're looking at the plan and wondering what all this new terminology and reasoning for it is and where to look for for these resources and sort of get a feel about what I'm trying to rebuild in them. As many of my athletes know, I focus a lot on your swimming. Why? Well, I believe swimming as a cross training, uh, cross fitness, less wear and tear on the body aspect is a huge component for our general fitness and general strength and general oxygen uptake that transfers really well to running and cycling and rowing and all kinds of different endeavors. So, um, and again, it's uh, putting a lot of athletes in an uncomfortable place, something they're just not good at. And having them struggle a bit and be really 
aware or uncomfortable for a workout or two each week and really out of their comfort zone with regards to embarrassment, yeah, it's embarrassing when you're not a good swimmer and you have to sort of do swim sets around other people. It's hard. It's humbling, I should say, not embarrassing. Humbling. Um, I think that's all just good for us to be uncomfortable a little bit and be humbled every week a little bit. I mean, I swam next to a guy today um, home from college. And yeah, of course, he's you know 30 years younger than me, but still, um, just to see how smooth and how much faster he is than me and you know getting my butt whooped in the first 25 50 of 100 with these guys yeah it's it's humbling it's a good reminder that a i'm getting old but b there's there's always faster guys out there and you know there's no shortcuts and you just sort of gotta really dig in and do the work in order to get back to that type of swimming which i'm not looking to but you know it's a good reminder man it was uncomfortable or for example the pool the other day the heater broke and so the water was extremely cold guess what you know it's uncomfortable but i i wanted to take advantage of that scenario that set itself up that it was just uncomfortable today and I'm going to work my way through it. And my hands are going to get numb and tingly and my feet are going to get tingly and numb because it's so cold. And those are, that's where I notice cold temperatures the most. And I'm going to get an, even a little headache. But you know what? Uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. And, you know, I was talking to an athlete yesterday and he's struggling with the aspect of not being able to push and struggle and suffer and work as hard as he used to in the sport of triathlon. And I get it. I get it. Once we have our our brain wrapped around how hard it is and um, the toll it takes on us to continuously drive and dig, it starts building up a resistance, a wall to that, that you know, it will fight you and say, no, I don't want to always do this. There is no, why should we continue this struggle? And if you don't continuously practice being uncomfortable, digging deep, getting out of your comfort zone with regards to intervals, with regards to pain of how hard a workout is, well, you know, you lose the ability to, to do that when you need to. And so there's a variety of ways to live. I'm not saying to live the strenuous life here, but to be under stress and under strain physically a couple of times a week is definitely part of your health, your sanity, and overall ability to deal with life and the days to come with regards to training. So, all right, enough about that. <laughs> it's Monday, and I'm usually, not usually, as usual, going through my many, many training plans and logs and then the amount of emails that athletes send me with regards to how their last week went, what they observed, how they're feeling, what they didn't get in and so forth, sort of painting a picture of where they are. And I totally appreciate these emails and these updates, but I also must say that they give me a good insight into some of the challenges that many, many athletes, not just my athletes, face. And one of those challenges is the understanding that what they signed up for, 
that the event, the adventure, the race that they signed up for requires more. And what I mean by that is many athletes love to see the picture, the event, the adventure, the race unfolding in front of them. And that's great that you're able to envision how you will be doing and performing through that event. But the challenge becomes when the event, that vision of yourself doing it, is disconnected from your day-to-day training. And what I mean about it this week, about this topic this week, is that oftentimes we sign up for events, ultra-endurance events, endurance events, for example, and we think we can just add a little more to our daily current training and think that will be enough to transform us, to put us into the vision that we have of ourselves participating or racing or completing that next adventure or event or race. And that's a confusion that many who are newer to the ultra-endurance world um, have misunderstood. This training, this lifestyle, this um, journey towards that ultra-endurance event or even an endurance event, even a marathon, requires a different approach. And of course, I don't mean you drop everything and make your training your only focus for the day and week and months ahead. Of course, lifestyle, family, career, loved ones, and so on still carry equal weight. And there will be weeks where life gets in the way, family gets in the way, um, work gets in the way. And I don't say in the way in a negative way. I say that more it carries the bigger load of time or pressure or unforeseen events come up. Kids get sick or different activities require different approaches and suck your training time out of the week. Those weeks happen. But it's because of exactly those weeks, and as many of you know, I call them wedge weeks, that we need to be oh so much more consistent and steady and committed and focused and um, disciplined with regards to executing what the plan is for that week on the weeks when those events don't come up. And yes, it does require changing some of our plans when we have plans to go on our usual vacation or all the other hobbies that we like to do. If you have signed up for a major event, it might require for a year or for a few months to putting those hobbies onto the back burner. Because again, back to that vision of what you see yourself doing requires some changes, requires a different focus, requires a commitment that you um, become that vision. So it's not just about adding a little bit more time. So often I see athletes who think they can take on an ultra endurance or an endurance adventure by just adding a little bit more time to what is currently their general daily lifestyle. Well, I usually play volleyball on this day. Well, I usually like to surf on this afternoon. Well, I like to go on a hike or you know do this on Sundays in the morning. Well, you know, I'm a big believer of keeping a balanced lifestyle through this all. But I'm also um, can't stress enough that 
it's important that we understand these ultra endurance adventures in order to feel good, in order to really live through it in a positive, um, immersed um, way that you feel great doing it, not just um, in regards to a performance or a time, but that you really feel connected doing it um, and not miserable and not overwhelmed and not beat down, it requires a shift. And it requires a commitment to executing the training as I'm writing it in order for you to get to the point where you feel good about it. It requires sacrifice. It requires work. And that's my main point here is that preparing for ultra endurance adventures is not just about adding a little bit more, squeezing a little bit more out of our day, out of our current lifestyle. It's about maximizing the limited time we have to getting ourselves better prepared for that ultra endurance adventure. I realize we all have work, we all have family, we all have projects, we all have careers, we all have um, kids with regards to activities, we all have many life events that require our attention. And again, ultra endurance events haven't um, we're not gone, we have not gone professional in them, and therefore they're not as high up on the totem pole with regards to how we structure our days. I get that. But when we do commit to something, when we do look at the training plan for the week, when we do say these are the hours we can do, when we do say or commit to this is the event I'm doing this summer. It will require this type of work, which I've usually had those conversations with many of athletes. Um, then we will need to make some shifts and adjustments around that. Because come the day, it will be quite difficult if we haven't done the work. And like you guys have all heard me talk about so often on the podcast, the beauty of ultra endurance events is that you can't hide from doing the work. We're all back on a level playing field. Whether you have, you know, all kinds of money and wealth or you are just getting by, guess what? Ultra endurance training, you can't make that. None of that helps you. The only thing that does work is the work, right? The only thing that helps you get fitter is consistency, training, hours, focus, repetition, doing the right training. And it's a beautiful filter. You got to do the work. You got to do the work, as you have all heard me say. And yes, life can be overwhelming. That's the way life works. It's testing you. It's going to throw problems at you and it's going to throw them all at you at the same time. Just that's how it always got, happens. It's like Murphy's Law. And it is easy to feel beaten down when you're faced with all those problems or all those projects or all those activities or all those issues swirling around your life at once. But let me tell you, that does not mean we give up or we don't embrace the fight to work through that. In fact, it means the opposite. It's time that we focus harder. 
It's time that we um, straighten our back and get even more disciplined with regards to our time, with regards to our focus, with regards to our sleep, with regards to our organization through our day. You can get it done if you stay focused and stay crisp with regards to your intentions of the day and what you want your outcomes to be. Every day you can wake up early, get your workout done, get your stuff organized, get your workday done, get your family time in, get your meals in, and get your booty to bed in order to repeat and rinse, right? It's hard. Absolutely, it's hard. But that's exactly the routine and the focus and the hunkering down that we want to do when things are that overwhelming. That 45-minute run is more valuable than not doing it at all. It's time to dig in in those times. It's time to really fight for what you really want and envision when you are doing that event. To assess what the problems are and decide which ones you're going to attack first. That's your intentions for the day. Whether you write them down the night before or early in the morning when you wake up and you're lying there in bed going, how will this day work for me? I'm going to get in that workout. Then I'm going to not waste a lot of time, get my breakfast done, get my get to work, focus at work, clock out, or get out of there when I need to, get my project done. If I have extra work today, great. I got my workout in earlier today. I'm already ahead of the game. And when I get home, I'm going to spend quality time with my loved ones, and then I'm going to have dinner, and then I'm going to go to bed. And I know it's not that cut and dry, but that's what I'm just trying to highlight, that we don't put in a lot of extra noise in those times. Yes, you do have a major work project. So that's exactly when the extra noise disappears, and you focus in on your three big priorities. My workouts, my family, my work. Done off to bed, repeat. That's exactly what we want to do in those times. Attack, seize the day, move forward with intention. And listen, it's not easy. In fact, it's going to be really hard to get through these times. Life is hard. That's what life is. That's how it's supposed to be. And these challenges that you face they're going to do their best to get in your way, to take that harmony, to take that relaxed ease out of your days. But don't let that happen. Live your day with intention. Stand up. Dig in. Focus. We all know there's times then when life is less stressful and you can sort of relax a little bit. You will get it all in. You can add those hobbies again right? Well, you can find a little bit of chill and relax time. You can sleep in because things have freed up a little bit. But when they're difficult, when life comes at you all at once, that's when you exactly want to be able to flip that switch, hunker down, dig in, straighten that spine, get those intentions going, get yourself organized and get it all done. And when you're done with that phase, with that stretch, with that 10-day window, that two-week window, even a month or three or four days, you'll feel great that you did it, that you stuck to it, that you resisted being worn down or beaten by what life was throwing at you. 
Instead, let those challenges raise you up because you'll feel great on the other side that you did it. Let those challenges, let that overwhelming feeling of a lot of things coming at you at once, let that challenge elevate you. Let those trials, let those demands, let those difficulties make you stronger. Let the adversity you face today turn you into a better person tomorrow. That's exactly what we do in our training. But you can pull that back to the big picture. I took all the punches that life was throwing at me and I got through it. And now it's a pretty chill time. Or maybe not. Maybe it's not as chill as you would like it because we all know life never gets as chill as it once was. (laughs) Life just gets busier and busier and busier. But you can do it. You absolutely can do it. There's so many people with you who are already doing it. Join that team. So in the future, and you look back at those struggles and those crazy times or those busy times and that time of adversity, you can know, A, that you've done it before, you've pushed through before. Sure, it's tiring. But you're stronger than that. You're better than that. You've made it through before. You're going to make it through again. And you can say, thank you. You made me better. The adversity, the challenges, the being overwhelmed, the so much coming at you at the same time, all these things lining up just when you thought you were doing great with your training and now you're overwhelmed. Guess what? Thank you. You're going to make me better. This phase is going to make me better. And again, that's where training seeps into, flows flows into, bleeds into the rest of our lives. If we can get things organized, if we can hunker down, if we can live our daily lives with intention and organization and focus and commitment and discipline, It's only going to make everything else easier. In a microcosm and a macrocosm, you will be better once again because of that that spark and that desire that training created. So if you want that vision of yourself at that finish line or doing the event in this beautiful arena, in this beautiful surrounding, in this beautiful... um, feeling of fitness and being connected and alive and feeling strong, if you want that vision, that image of yourself, and you close your eyes and see yourself doing it, then all this needs to come together. needs to come together with intention. And you will feel good about having navigated through the adversities of life and work and family and community and so forth and got it all done. You can, but we can't expect to just add a little bit more to our current life. We've got to take that adversity head on and be stronger and be better prepared for it and go with the ebbs and flows of what life throws at us. You can, I know you can, plenty of you do it. So I know most all of you can do it. That's the beauty. And all this discussion around fighting adversity in our days in order to get in the training and balance it all is not meant to feel, make anyone feel guilty. 
The beauty of coaching is that through working together, we can find that balance. We can find those phases where the training might be able to increase a little bit. And then when life gets busier or other priorities come up, that we decrease the training a little bit, but maximize the time. Listen, at the end of the day, for all of us, the goal is to reach that desired outcome. And we don't want to do that with guilt around the sacrifice we're making. And it can be done. It's a difficult journey. It's a challenging journey. It's a challenging schedule and process to go through. But that's what coaching and this podcast is here to help you with, to help you understand how to navigate through the trials and tribulations, not in a difficult way, but more the trials and tribulations of scheduling and of different things tugging at you with regards to priorities. And by doing things consistently over many, many months and weeks, it allows us, it buys us the time and able to and ability to be able to do ultra endurance events. Because that remember, like I've said in earlier podcasts and way long ago, the way to be able to build up endurance is in two folds, in two ways, excuse me. Um, one, it's consistency and volume over a long period of time. And then that volume, of course, isn't many hours, but it's just because you do it day after day after day after day, the layering creates an incredible base and creates a great level of endurance. Um, physiologically, there's a lot going on there. Um, just because on fatigued muscles, on empty, uh, not empty glycogen stores, but uh, lower glycogen stores to then train again and then again. And of course, you get into these sweet spots where you train in the morning, you train at night, and you train in the morning again. So you're never really catching up, not only on the body recovering, but also those glycogen stores being replenished properly. So that's one way, right? So 45 minutes at night, 45 minutes in the morning, an hour in the morning, an hour at night, and so forth. You do that over many weeks, it will have an endurance effect on you big time. And that's what I've talked about in the past with regards to weekend warriors versus taking and taking five days off versus consistently training through the week, even if it's just short um, time periods. And then the other way to train for an ultra endurance event is to come into it with a healthy, body, rested body, and then do this hunker down 16 to 20 weeks all at once. But the margin of error there is zero, right? The wedge weeks, the injuries, the things like that, that could go wrong, can't go wrong anymore then, because then we lose the time, we lose a valuable layer. And I deal with this all the time in my athletes, um, because they've had difficult weeks, or because they've gotten injured, or because they've gotten sick or because life got in the way, or because outside influences or forces in that respect got in the way, whether it's kids or family or career or travel or um, weather or extreme things, right? When that gets in the way, then all of a sudden we're catching up. And I'm not one who believes in catching up. Many of my athletes know this. I don't believe in just because we're behind, we now do extra long days or longer weekends because, you know, that 
10-hour event is coming up and we now need to still fit in a six-hour day or an eight-hour day or a long run like this. No, that is an injury waiting to happen. The one thing I don't compromise in any of my athletes, and I highly recommend for all ultra-endurance athletes, is continue your progression in a healthy way, even if you have fallen behind. If you're continuing your healthy progression in a in a, in a in a gradual way, even if race day becomes a big bump, it's a healthier way to go about it. You'll do better with it because you'll be able to recover behind it than if you demand too much of your body and your energy systems and your musculoskeletal structure bleh, um, prior that your injury likelihood, your depletion likelihood, your feeling flat likelihood, your lethargy likelihood is way higher. I had an athlete the other day. She did a, her, uh, not first 50 mile or sort of 50 miles. She's done a longer run before, but this one was on dirt and with some terrain and altitude. And she was very nervous about her ability to run 50 miles because in her training and life got in the way over the last few weeks and, um, yeah, a few weeks, I wouldn't say months at all, weeks. And so some of the big runs and some of the back-to-back stuff was missed. And her nerves and her confidence was very fragile because of that lack of that typical buildup. And when you look back before a race and you look at a beautiful, nice chart and a buildup and you see the volume and that you've been almost there 75% of the distance or 80% of the distance, of course that makes you feel good. But instead, I would, because she missed some time and fully valid reasons, absolutely valid reasons. It's not like because she was blowing it off or not um, motivated or interested. There's life gets in the way in big, big ways, especially with families and so forth. But I would rather her get to the start line healthy, rested, with maybe not quite the volume in her legs, but her will and her ability and her motivation and her clarity in her mind fresh to overcome the difficulties of race day versus being tired and therefore not being able to dig as deep and motivate and overcome. We all know from past times of doing ultra-endurance events, but even just shorter events, if your mind is not fresh, you can't dig as deep. If your mind is not fresh, you can't ask yourself to persevere and push on as well as when you are fresh, when you are excited, when you're bouncing off the walls to do it. And in most cases, people are able to persevere a lot longer and better and overcome more when they're fresh and healthy and rested. And so, yes, those are the two ways to go about it. But again, this isn't about a guilt factor when you're missing it. It's about doing the best that we can. And I talk about this all the time on the podcast that we're constantly looking for ways that we can be better. I think that's awesome. But we compare ourselves to our past self, whether it's our past extreme good fitness, whether it's our past hours that we had available, whether it's our past self with regards to what our abilities used to be, splits, times, paces, strength, wattages, etc. And we can't continue to do that because we are who we are now.
and making the best of our hours and our time now is exactly what coaching and this podcast is trying to communicate. If we can balance that in a good way and in a um, somewhat with, without thinking of a better term, relaxing way, because if you feel good about that you're balancing it all, it is motivating. If you feel good about balancing that you got in a good amount of training, nothing dramatic, but you're also on top of it with family and work and community and it's all in sync, then that's a good feeling. Now, of course, we all know it doesn't stay like that. It never stays like that in sync, right? And I heard the other day on a podcast that um, balance is not something to strive for. I think it was Michael Gervais on the Ritual podcast. And I disagree with that. And I'm going to see those guys in a couple of weeks and <laughs> I will talk to them about that. Because yes, on the one hand, Michael says, balance is not something to strive for because it's too hard to achieve. Absolutely not, in my opinion. In my opinion, balance is something to strive for because it, while it might not stay there, right? Same as flow or certain physiological states or extreme good fitness. It's not easy to stay there or it's impossible to keep. But when you feel it, when you feel good about it, when it creates that good energy vibe at peace inside you, that you are imbalanced, that you're getting it all done, that everybody's getting the attention they deserve, right? Because they deserve it, your family and your career, as well as you, you deserve it. When that happens, it feels really good. And that's oftentimes a great motivator, not the motivation, but it's an additional motivator to do it again. And when you hit that point, it feels good. It allows you to sort of exhale and say, I feel good today going to bed. I got it all done. And I feel good that everybody got what they needed. And I got what I needed. And I'm growing. And of course, again, that balance won't stay there. And it will things will go out of whack. But because we've reached balance every now and then when it's out of whack, we feel okay about focusing more of our attention on work and career and the projects of that time needed. We feel okay at times when the family and kids and activities or community or church require more of our time in that respect. That's fine. And then there's times where things flow more towards us and we have more time to train and so forth because we're spreading that energy around and that's never just all in balance and perfectly delicately, delicately in balance all the time. The forces of those involved can feel that too. Your family feels it when you're more present and into it and times in need that you're always there and available. And then that things flow back to training. It makes it easier to, to overcome that time of a, let's say a five hour run or a five hour bike or a long weekend, because they know if things are needed, if things have to get done, they still get done that you're available and can shift your priorities. I think balance is very important in that. And that's sort of the mindset that we all want to have with this. Ultra endurance athletics is hard enough. But if we grip too tight onto keeping one aspect of it all going, the guilt and the difficulty and the energy it requires to keep it all going is too hard. 
And I personally believe there's a very real chance and not chance, um, real structure and place that we can get it all, all done at all times. Now, again, it's that ebb and flow and there'll be times you can train more and train less. And then that less, like I was saying, requires more um, attention to detail and focus and working on, here we go, here we go, technique, slowing down and working on fundamentals, on pedal stroke, on posture, on running form, on swim form, on all the details that oftentimes get overlooked when we have a lot more hours because we're looking for the volume. And that's the beauty of this. We can use each little piece to our advantage. But again, if you're not communicating with your coach, whoever that is, effectively to make take advantage of that time and that balance and help you work with it and sort of take that load off your mind in order to maximize the limited time you currently have available because other forces are pulling at you with regards to the balance, that's fine. That's totally fine. That's what coaching is all about, right? When I don't hear from my athletes, I'm disappointed. And I'm disappointed because I want to send them an email like, what the heck are you thinking? What's going on? Where are you? But that only creates guilt and I don't want to create guilt. So I try to explain the more you give me, the better we can maximize your time. But don't just blow things off. Communicate. Say life got in the way. Let me quickly make an adjustment for you. I'm here to help you achieve your desired outcomes in balance. And remember, balance isn't, uh, and I'm not talking about balance always being perfect in sync. Balance might be that it's 40% family, 40% career, and 20% training, right? That might be the balance for that, for that month, for that macro cycle, for that week, whatever it is. And then another balance might be as we're approaching uh, the event, or six or eight weeks out, and we need to get some bigger training. Maybe it's 40% training, 40% family, and 20% career. So energies can move, but their things are still in balance, right? As we strive for balance, we don't want to look for that type of perfection as if we're getting in max of all. That's impossible. Balance is where you feel good about how you structured your day, how you got it all done, and how you can continue to get it done day after day after day. My preferred choice for all ultra endurance athletes is a little something every day. You've all heard it before, a little something every day. If you're on vacation and you don't have access to a pool and a bike, a little bit of running and core and stability every day. doesn't require much. Your body still absorbs it and loves it and it's still a layer. It might be a tiny layer, but it's still a layer. Right? And at least if it's not a layer, you're not going backwards. You're not shedding layers. You're not deep um, constructing the pyramid, the house, the foundation. Right? We want to avoid deconstructing. Too many days off or too many days going to extremes is deconstructing. Right? Too much training, too sudden training, too hard training, too trying to catch up training is also deconstructing because it'll leave you tired, leave you sick, leave you shelled, and you're back to square one in a week or two. Of Okay, I got to take a step back and rebuild this puppy from scratch. That's where we're at. I'm reading some more 
race reports, and in this case, race reports from Ironman Santa Rosa. And I've also noticed this in some of the race reports regarding half Ironmans, Ironmans, as well as um, other longer bike races. And one of the things I wanted to comment on is how people have um, get cramps and are sore or have quad cramps or have quad and VMO and glute issues, lower back issues in races. And one of the key components to this is the fact that in a race, you're pushing bigger gears, longer, steadier effort at those bigger gears, bigger efforts, bigger wattage, as well as you're staying in the arrow position longer. And so what happens here is different than our riding in training where we sit up, where we loosen up the legs a little bit by lightening up the effort at different times. Man, you guys hear the crickets? They're pretty loud in the background here. My kids have a gecko, and so every few weeks we add a bunch of live crickets to the gecko tank, and they are creaking away. Anyway, so we're using um, muscles in a different uh, manner in races um, under a more constant load. And so that happens quite often that when we get off the bike, we're cramping quite dramatically or we can feel the quad pain or the achiness from being in that position. That is little to do with leg strength or strength work or conditioning in that respect, but more simulating and pushing more um, race efforts truly in the aero position. I've talked about this before, maybe on the podcast, but I know with many of my athletes over the years, and that is we really want to use the simulations as a triathlete, for those of you that are triathletes, to really um, monitor how much time in that simulation or in a focused training day that we're spending in the aero position. Now, um, you can time that, but also just be aware of that, whether that's intervals or how you start and stop your watch with regards to being in the aero position or not. Um, as you all know, I'm not a big believer that the arrow position is that different, that taxing on the body with regards to the position itself. You should be able to fall into that position and be in that position comfortably. But it's another thing of holding that position and pushing the wattages, the efforts, um, the resistance for that long. So the, 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 the factor I'm talking about, the differentiation here, is more about not comfort, but being in the position and then holding the watts because that requires um, a slightly different muscle group, right? When you're sitting up, you're more glute and hamstring focused as you are on a road bike. When you're in the aero position, you're leaned more forward and the strain is more on your knee and your VMO and your quads and so forth, um, your IT bands especially, because you're leaned more over your knee and the power generated goes more on the front of front muscles of the leg. Um, 
<clears throat> so that needs to be practiced. That needs to be trained. That needs to be, the tolerances, the muscle fatigue for that needs to be built up. And so that's why it's important to train that. And that's why many athletes feel that after the race or on the run of a triathlon so dramatically. So the takeaway here is to really focus in your training or simulations, specific days or indoor intervals that you're working on or um, just in general, when you see a good workload of a workout or a good simulation of TT work and TT being time trial work, you wanna make sure that you're really staying down and really pushing the effort, the fatigue on the muscles to prep you for that in the run. Those of you doing Ironman or even longer, remember that fatigue builds up over time and so you will need to spend a lot of hours out there in that position to really push that. Don't get me wrong. I get that sensation every now and then too as I'm training for a triathlon. But I build up again the tolerances so that this does not become an issue in the race. Um, now, of course, in the days after, I feel it in my quads and in my um, above my knees and in my... Um, IT bands, but that's cumulative pounding from the run as well. And of course, if I feel it after the race and the race is over, but it didn't limit me in any way during the race, that's what we want. So keep that in mind as you're training and as you're prepping for an Ironman or a triathlon in general. This could be from an Olympic distance all the way up to an Ironman. The ability to push that wattage, that effort, that resistance in the arrow position and how it's fatiguing you. Along the same lines with those race reports is an interesting consistent theme that I see in all my race reports. I had a few people racing 50 milers this weekend, a few people racing Ironmans. I had somebody racing um, 100K in Australia. Um, so people are racing all over the world and at all times and uh, not all times, but on the weekends. And the consistent message that I seem to be getting more and more from so many athletes, mostly the ones that have been working with me for a while, is if they just execute the plan, a good day presents itself. And it's a hard um, theory concept to actually play out effectively because executing a good day is very hard to do in an ultra endurance event as well as endurance events because there's so much time elapsing in an, in the event there's a lot of time and factors that can um, take away a good execution there's a lot of mistakes to be made there's a lot of things that can go wrong there's a lot of decisions that need to be made and um, good execution along with good ex uh, decisions usually almost always nets you a good result. But again, there's a lot that can go wrong. And so a lot of factors play into, will I have, um, the, will I have made the right decisions on race day? As well as, will I have followed through on an achievable execution? And what I mean by achievable execution, sometimes we make the plan more complicated than it needs to be. Um, there, if there's too many things 
in your race plan to execute, you can pretty much count on that you will miss a lot of those steps because it's just, it can't be too complicated. You're already focused on effort and fueling and hydration and outside factors and the race and the difficulty of the terrain or the effort and so forth. So to then also think of too many details to execute a good race, that's very hard. The other aspect is if you've been practicing your execution in simulations and training days, then again, executing on race day should come easier. You've visualized it, you've processed it, you've worked through it in your head, and then it's just a question of doing it again for another day. So all these things are possible, but <clears throat> the closing comment I want to say about execution is if you want to think of it from a different perspective, try this. This um, In ultra endurance racing especially, but even in endurance racing and where I'm talking like marathons and Ironmans and so on, that's endurance racing. If you just focus on out executing your competition, out executing the others on the course around you or your peers, you will be successful versus the, the competition, versus your peers, versus those racing around you. Because again, it is a very difficult and hard thing to do to properly execute over many, many hours. And so when you do that, you will have out-executed many, many competitors, and you will most likely be quite happy with your result. When I think about out-executing our competitors or those in the event, in the race, with us or around us or those who are also vying for the podium, I think about how we meet, need to stay focused and how we need to stay present and our attention span. And our attention span is something in this day and age that is so easily distracted, put off, and we're not able to focus as we should be able to. But again, this takes... Um, training. This takes practice to make it a habit on how to really create and, and foster the ability to really pay attention. Execution on race day means 10, 12, 14, 16, 20 hours in some cases, five, six, seven hours of focus, of paying attention, of being deeply immersed into listening to our body into listening to our surroundings, into listening to our the environment with regards to temperature and terrain. It takes a lot. And so it requires us to practice that attention. The ability to execute is not necessarily reciting what's on the piece of paper or the email or the document that you wrote out your execution plan, your race plan, but it's your ability to not only use it on race day as in recite it, but then apply it as it's happening in the moment. It's your attention and your ability to stay present towards that race plan, towards executing that race plan. Winifred Gallagher in her book, Wrapped, quotes David Meyer, a cognitive scientist at the University of Michigan. Einstein didn't invent the theory of relativity while he was multitasking at the Swiss patent office. 
It came after, when he really had time to focus and study. Attention matters, matters, excuse me, attention matters. And in an era in which our attention is being fought for by every new app, website, article, book, tweet, and post, its value has only gone up. What I'm saying here is that attention is a habit and that letting your attention slip and wander builds bad habits and enables mistakes. That's where it is. If we're dropping our execution, those are mistakes. Those are windows of opportunity where we can execute better. And those that have great races, those have had great results. And I'm not talking in time or placing, but where they feel that they executed to their potential, they avoided the mistakes that they commonly make during their training or racing and put it all together. And as I was saying earlier, when you avoid the mistakes, when you out-execute your past self, your own past results, it's not a question of fitness being better. It's not a question of all of a sudden having this remarkable new ability. It's this, that you avoided the mistakes on race day. A lot of what I say with regards to um, not slowing down, that's a mental aspect with regards to staying present, staying focused, moving forward. But it's that, again, that is not a question of fitness. At that point, our fitness has waned. We're tired. We're exhausted. It's a question of staying present, out executing. Execution at that point becomes very simple. Just continue running. Just continue to main form. Just continue to pedal. Just continue to reach and continue on with your freestyle. Things like that add up so that at the end of your 5, 6, 7, 10, 12, 14, 16, 30-hour event, you out-executed by avoiding mistakes. You'll never complete all your tasks if you allow yourself to be distracted with every tiny interruption. And on race day and on event day and even on training days where you have an opportunity to practice this, there are always interruptions. There's interruptions all day long. There's the interruptions that you think about what you're missing from work or what your family is doing or what you need to do when you get back and so forth. Again, it's all opportunities to practice execution, staying present, attention, attention to details, attention to how you're feeling, attention to output. It's constant practice. Your attention, especially on race day and especially on simulation days where you're getting ready for race day, is one of your most critical resources. Don't squander these opportunities to stay attentive all day. Training is a great opportunity to stay attentive, to stay present, to stay focused on what your desired outcome is of this session, of this race, of this future goal, and how you're working towards that, and how you're currently in the moment. Sure, we all talk about staying present, but just paying attention is already a huge step to staying present. Keep that in mind as you're trying to out-execute yourself, your competition, your age group, your peers, out-executing. 
It's a great way to keep in mind. You can do this at work. You can do this as at, with your family, in your personal life, and you surely can do it in your athletic world. Out-executing isn't necessarily competitive. It's just being doing what you're capable of, your best self, once again. The best version of yourself out-executes the not-so-best version of yourself. All right, well, that will be it this week for the Weekly Word Podcast. I know another longer one, a long one of me talking, but I hope you enjoyed some of those topics and had some tidbits you could pull out of it. Some episodes are more technical, more training-related, more focused on that, but I try to have a little bit of each in each episode, and I think I did this time. So good luck this coming week in out-executing your own self paying attention, working on how long you're paying attention, working on staying arrow and you know working on keeping that position so that you get stronger in that position, working on your swimming <laughs> drills and catch up as we talked about. And remember about fighting adversity. Those punches are coming and it's how we approach it and how we view it and how we absorb those punches and get stronger from it. Sort of like in Kung Fu Panda, when I think it was Kung Fu Panda 2, where he uh, kept taking those body blows and it just made him stronger. <laughs> you can see I watch a fair amount of movies with my kids. Have a great week, everybody.